Hi, everyone. Good morning. Um, thanks for making it out so early. Uh, my name is Rami Kalish. I am a second-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University, which is a small medical school about an hour south of Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I got my Bachelor's of Science from Kent State University. Um, a little bit of background on me uh, as a person. I was born and raised here in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, but my parents are uh, both from Syria. They were both born and raised in Syria, and they immigrated here to the States before I was born. Um, I come from a Muslim background, so both my parents are practicing Muslims, um, and likewise I was raised that way. Um, so hopefully I can offer a unique perspective on sort of what's going on in Syria right now and the whole refugee crisis and uh, basically just put it all into context for everyone. Um, a little bit of background on the mission trip I was uh, so fortunate enough to go on. Uh, so I joined the Syrian American Medical Society, which is a nonprofit group here in the U.S. It's actually a very, very large humanitarian organization. They do a lot of medical relief work uh, overseas, whether it be within Syria or in the countries around Syria, like Jordan and Lebanon, even Greece as well, um, because they've received a large influx of refugees because of the crisis. Um, they also do a lot of medical relief work here in the States as well. So I was lucky enough to join them. Uh, this past July, and the mission itself was to Jordan. Um, so we saw we saw a lot of Syrian refugees over there in Jordan, as well as seeing some of the local Jordanians as well. Um, here are just the objectives for my session today. Um, they were online. Basically, uh, in summary, I'm going to try to mainly focus on the reflection of the mission trip that I was able to go on. But before I can do that, I have to... I think it's beneficial if I provide a little bit of context and background as to what has been going on in Syria and sort of the magnitude of the refugee crisis in general. Before I do that, um, this is something that personally I think is very powerful and I found uh, pretty inspirational and helpful to me when I got back from my mission trip. Um, so oftentimes, uh, as people, I guess psychologically, um, whenever we want to go and do something or take any sort of action, uh, whether it be social ad advocacy, um, doing things for social justice, even smaller things in our lives, uh, whether it be things in school, uh, things at work, a lot of times people have some sort of an experience that is so emotionally moving that it causes them to become motivated and it leads to some sort of action. So, for example, this can be a negative or a positive experience. Many of us have experienced rush hour traffic. It's a pretty awful experience, a pretty negative one, um, and it motivates you to take some sort of proactive action. So you leave work 15 minutes earlier, or you leave your home 15 minutes earlier to try and avoid it. Um, for me personally, uh, my experience with the mission trip uh, was such an emotionally moving experience that it caused me to become motivated. So when I came back, I wanted to do something, take some sort of action. Um, and I guess my route that I chose or hopefully want to choose is social advocacy. So I'm hoping by being here today, I can provide 
a similar experience for you guys. You don't have to necessarily go on a mission trip to feel this. I'm hoping to bring that experience here into the room for you guys so you may feel motivated and hopefully take some sort of action uh, to help with this cause in the future. So I like this. I just wanted to start out with that. Um, here's a map of a portion of the Middle East. You can see up there is Syria. Um, where I have marked right here is the Zaatari refugee camp, uh, which is in Jordan. So this is uh, probably one of the most well-known refugee camps uh, within Jordan. Um, at one point, there were about, say, over 100,000 refugees living within this refugee camp. Um, but at the time that I went, I believe there was about 80,000. Um, we stayed, when we went, we stayed in Amman, which is the capital of Jordan. Um, so our trip, whenever we would go to the Zatari refugee camp, was a little bit over an hour. Um, and you can see it's pretty close to the southern border, the southern border of Syria. Um, so many of the uh, Syrians that were living in the south of Syria... Uh, when they decided to flee. Uh, this was one of the prime locations that they went to. Um, many Syrians who resided in Aleppo, which you can see is towards the top of Syria right there, they um, typically don't make the route down to Jordan. A lot of them would go into Turkey, because that is closer to the Turkish border. Um, and that is a big area where we saw sort of the, um, I believe it was not last summer, but the summer before, there was a huge uh, influx of Syrian refugees to Europe, and they were showing you know, videos of refugees crossing the Mediterranean, trying to get from Turkey to Greece. Uh, many of these refugees were from, from Aleppo and also other places in the northern area of Syria. So the crisis in Syria didn't just start up from nothing. It didn't just randomly appear. Um, about this time, a little bit before 2011, uh, if you'll recall, the Arab Spring was going on. Uh, many countries, such as Libya, uh, Tunisia, Egypt, a lot of them were going through turnover uh, in their leadership. Um, many of the citizens were unhappy with various things, such as um, socioeconomic inequality, um, basically sort of like outdated rule over their country. Um, there was some discrimination, things like that. People just wanted... Uh, a more progressive government and a more progressive and welcoming environment. And Syria was one of these countries. Um, about around 1940, uh, Syria had gained independence from France. They were at one point a French colony. Um, and when they gained independence for about 20 to 30 years, they had experienced a lot of different uh, parties leading Syria. Um, and they also experienced a lot of coup attempts and a lot of successful coup attempts as well. So for about 20 to 30 years, you had different parties ruling over Syria. Um, eventually, the, uh, what people call the Ba'ath Party, or the party of Hafez al-Assad, um, took over. Uh, they had a coup, and it was successful. This was about around 1970. Um, and this is when a lot of people started to, I guess, get upset. You see, between like 1970 up to the uprising in 2011 in Syria, there was a lot of socioeconomic inequality. A lot of people benefited from connections to government, uh, to government officials. So if you had some sort of connections to the government, you were pretty well off in society. 
Also, the merchant class in big cities were favored as well. Um, it, I guess the, the uh, economy was a little bit stratified. So you had the upper class and the lower class, but sort of an absent middle class. And this troubled a lot of people. There was also high uh, youth unemployment rates. So youth, uh, whether they went to college or not, and whether they were graduating or not, uh, when they were looking for jobs, they couldn't really find any. There was also a drought from 2007 to 2010, and this really hurt the farming district within Syria, which is actually a pretty substantial uh, amount of people who basically do this for a living. Um, but the drought really hurt the, the, the crops for those seasons, um, and that added to sort of the economic uh, instability within the lower class. Also, um, human rights in Syria were sort of like a not very well-known thing, and if there were any in general, they were sort of restricted or limited. Uh, so you had limitations on free speech, uh, limitations on public gathering size. Uh, basically, ever since Hafez al-Assad took over, uh, there was sort of an emergency rule over the state, and they were sort of governed by emergency law. Um, human rights activists were often detained and tortured. Uh, and there was a lot of discrimination between uh, different uh, cultures and religious sects within the environment as well. So Hafez al-Assad ruled for about 30 or so years. I believe he died in 2000, and after that, Bashar al-Assad took over, who is currently ruling over him and his regime, currently ruling over Syria uh, as we speak today. Um, around March 15, 2011, um, protests basically began. Some say they were triggered by this event here. Uh, there was a boy and a couple of school children who basically wrote graffiti on uh, one of the walls within the school saying the people want the fall of the regime. Uh, this was in the city of Dara'a. And a lot of people point to this as one of the main instigating factors of the public protests that began in Syria. So after this event, people started to take, take to the streets um, and basically started to demand the rights and equality that so many of the other Arab countries around Syria were starting to demand at this time. Um, a couple of months later, the protests continued, um, and this boy right here, Hamza Ali al-Khatib, uh, was captured during one of the protests, and he was tortured uh, by some of the government officials, and his body was returned to his family, uh, and it was mutilated. Um, you know, he suffered multiple gunshot wounds, uh, had multiple scars. Basically, they, they tortured him, returned the body to his family. And after this, um, a lot of people really, really got upset. Uh, this event was so impactful that some people, uh, after this, even began to call Saturdays uh, the day of Hamza. So he, this, this event had a really, really big impact on the scale of the early revolt of the Syrian people. Uh, in response to this event, uh, Secretary, at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton marked the death of Hamza uh, as a turning point within the uprising, basically saying that this symbolizes for many Syrians uh, a lack and collapse of any effort by the Syrian government to try to listen to their own people. By the end of May 2011, you have about 1,000 civilians and 150 soldiers and policemen killed, and you have about you have thousands that have been detained. Uh, among the arrested are students, liberal activists, and human rights advocates. 
So this is sort of the start of the revolution. And from this point on, we sort of see uh, what we've come to see today, um, the large-scale uh, killing of the Syrian people, basically. There have been reported anywhere from 250,000 to 400,000 deaths uh, as a result of the civil war within Syria up to today. And there are over 10 million, million thousand there are over 10 million refugees that have been displaced either internally within Syria or externally abroad. As events continue to unfold, we have many images that have become symbolic of the Syrian revolution. Um, if you'll recall, uh, about a year ago or a little over a year, we have Eilan Kurdi, who was the little boy that you see pictured here. Uh, this happened during the mass migration that we saw about a year ago when many of the Syrian refugees started to flee to Europe, when Europe started to open up its borders. So uh, this road was not easy for the Syrians. Um, from Syria, you have to go up to Turkey, and from Turkey, you have to cross the Mediterranean over to Greece. And the journey from Turkey to Greece over the Mediterranean is a very difficult journey, uh, depending on the season. Um, tides can be very rough, the water can be very cold, so many, many Syrian refugees ended up dying during this migration. Even after you get to Greece, you still have to go from European country to country, stopping at different borders, uh, trying to get in, until you know, basically you get to a country that will accept you. Many of these refugees were trying to go to Germany, because at the time, even till today, Germany is still continuing to accept you know, the majority of the refugees that want to go to Europe. As the revolution continues we see more images that are basically symbolic of the suffering of the Syrians within Syria. Uh, this was fairly recent. Amran Daqnish, um was a Syrian boy in Aleppo. Um, and during the government air raids of Aleppo, um, one of the buildings that he was in was crushed. And you can see here he's covered in rubble uh, and blood. Unfortunately, what isn't told so often is Amran, he was able to survive. He was rescued by the White Helmets in Syria, which is sort of the uh, uh, main uh, humanitarian organizations there trying to help the Syrian refugees or the Syrians within Syria. They go and they basically, anytime some sort of disaster strikes, they go and they rescue people from the rubble. Uh, they make sure people have medical attention, etc. So he was rescued. Amran was rescued, but his brother wasn't so fortunate. His brother actually ended up dying. But that isn't told as often, um, because this picture is so impactful, we only tend to see what happened to Amran, but his brother actually did not make it through uh, this particular airstrike. Now, some of these pictures of the children that have come out, uh, the government has wanted to pass off as propaganda. Uh, the Guardian actually released emails that were leaked from Bashar al-Assad's wife, uh, that were sent from Bashar al-Assad's wife's father to Bashar, uh, basically he was trying to tell him how you can pass off these incidences that are going on uh, with the Syrian refugee children and sort of these graphic images that we're seeing, how you can pass them off as, uh, basically he called it British propaganda. So if you listen to some interviews by Bashar al-Assad, oftentimes if he's probed or asked, like, what do you think of, you know, the children that are suffering, for example... Sometimes they'll just pass it off as propaganda. Uh, but we know that these things are actually happening. Um, and this was just the other day to 
sort of remind us that this crisis is still continuing. Um, SAMS, which is the group that I was able to go with on the mission trip, uh, had a press release where they cited incidences of unconventional weapons uh, that were targeting civilians in East Ghouta and Aleppo. Um, and basically, in summary, they were just calling for the international community to take action because these, these things still go on every day. Whether we see them in the media or not, um, there are continuous attacks on the Syrian people every day. Um, so organizations like SAMS call for international communities um, and just local communities abroad to be aware of things like this and try to take action. And this is just a graphic of the uh, scale of the refugee crisis. You can see that about 13.5 million people are still in need of humanitarian assistance. Over 10 million Syrians are on the run. Particularly, I just want to point out in Jordan, because that was where I had the opportunity to go to, one in 10 people is a Syrian refugee within Jordan. So it's a pretty large number. Um, so that's just a little bit of context about what's been going on in Syria, and uh, hopefully we can keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the presentation. Um, so now, there's not going to be much words on the slides anymore. I kind of just want to talk to you guys, and hopefully this can be sort of an, an open discussion. If you guys have any questions along the way, feel free to raise your hand, feel free to stop me, and feel free to ask them. So, before the mission trip itself, um, one of the main things that I guess I saw was important, and I guess this is important with anything in life in general, is to just make sure you have the right intentions um, to do what you are going to do. So in the case of going on a medical mission trip, um, obviously you want to set your intentions right. Make sure it's not about yourself. Make sure you're not doing any of this for any sort of selfish motivation. You want to tell yourself, I'm going to help a very vulnerable population within the world. Um, people that don't have a lot of medical care, people that sometimes don't have food for the next day. Uh, these are the things you want to keep in mind. And, you know, I think um, from a religious standpoint, this is very practical. Um, all of us, if you look at, you know, all of the mainstream religions, one of their basic foundational principles is to do to other people or don't do to other people what you would like done for yourself or not done for yourself, vice versa. Um, so, you know, you see all of these uh, refugees across the world and you understand their living situation and you sort of put that in your heart and you understand, I wouldn't want something like this to happen to me or my family, um, so I'm going to make sure that I take the proper action um, because that's, that's what empathy is all about. That's what sympathizing with other people is all about. So for me personally, setting my intentions right before the trip was important to me. Um, I can recall a conversation with my friend's dad, um, and my friends were also on this mission trip with me as well, but we were talking to my friend's dad before we left, and he was basically reminding us and telling us that this trip, um, you're not going to gain anything really medical from it. You know, you're going to go, you're going to shadow doctors, but you're not going to see anything crazy. You'll go, you'll see some chronic illnesses, uh, but you're not going over there to learn medicine. You're going over there to basically grow up, to see um, real aspects of suffering that are going on across the world. 
And he was telling us, like, if a trip like this doesn't change you as a person, I don't know what will. So, you know, at that point, it was very important to me to have the right mindset going into a trip like this, understanding the magnitude of the situation, and understanding that I'm not going over there for any sort of selfish need. I'm going over there to try and do my best and make whatever impact, however small it may be, to help these people uh, because they needed a lot of help. So, now we'll get into a little bit of the trip summary. Um, but before I do that, I just want to share hope, I, what I think is a relevant point. Um, whether you are someone planning on going on a medical mission trip in the future, or, um, or even if you're not, I think this point is just beneficial and practical to our everyday life here in this country. Um, many of the refugees over there um, are Muslim, because many of the majority of the Syrian population um, is Muslim. Um, but not all of them are Muslim as well. There are some Christian refugees over there and some refugees from other religions as well. Um, but going over there, I feel like for a non-Muslim, going to a Muslim country may seem intimidating. Um, but what, what I think is one of the easiest things to put in your mind and maybe the most helpful is um, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, you can relate to these people. Um, just from the standpoint of religion, uh, these Muslims believe in prophets that you likely believe in. You know, they believe in the Prophet Jesus. They believe in the Prophet Moses. Um, so just from a religious, a, religi a religious standpoint, you may not share the exact same beliefs, but you have commonalities with them. Um, and even aside from religion... Um, there is no barrier when it comes to sympathizing with someone who is going through hardship. You know, um, I feel like as, as humans, it's one of our innate qualities to be able to understand people going through difficult situations. So I really think that whether you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim going on a trip like this, it's very easy to understand these people. Um, there aren't many barriers between you and them as it may seem like there may be within our country. Because when you go over there, uh, differences subside. They go away because there's more important things that people have to worry about over there. Um, in addition to that, um, sometimes I think people may also get intimidated because of uh, different cultural things over there um, within like the Arab world. Um, but I can tell you from first-hand experience, being Arab myself, um, that they're some of the most uh, generous and welcoming people. We had many non-Muslims and non-Arab uh, physicians and health professionals join us on this trip. And I think if you asked any one of them, they would tell you that the, not just the Jordanian people that we were around, but the Syrian refugees themselves were as generous as they could be. They offered, up, they offered so much to us. They opened up to us. Um, they shared so many of their stories. And they were just so welcoming that, you know, you, you honestly forget uh, anything you've ever been told in the past and you focus on that moment because it's so impactful that it, makes, it basically makes everything else seem so small. So um, I just wanted to share that point before we start with the trip summary in general because I think it's, it's a good perspective to have just on life in general, whether you're going to go on a medical mission trip to the Middle East in the future or just living here in this country as well.
So one of the main places we went to was the Zaatari refugee camp within Jordan. It's about an hour north of the capital, which is where we were staying at the time. Um, you can see on the bottom left, this is an aerial view of the refugee camp. Basically, as you're approaching the camp, everything around it is sort of like a barren desert. There's nothing there. But then all of a sudden, you get to this huge complex, and you can see how far it extends. At one point, there were over 100,000 people living here. Um, the quote-unquote homes are little makeshift shacks, basically. Um, they, honestly, they don't have much. Like, if you ask, when we were there, we would uh, sometimes ask the refugees, like, how's your situation here? Uh, you know, how's it like living here? Do you guys get enough food? Do you have enough water, etc.? Um, and their response would be, like, thank God we have enough. Like, that's literally all they say. They say, thank God we have enough. They wouldn't elaborate on it. Um, but just from that, you could tell, like, okay, they probably don't have that much realistically because it's a refugee camp, resources are limited, but they're still very, very appreciative of what they do have, uh, which was really amazing to see. Um, about half of the refugees living within the Zatari refugee camp are children. So, um, obviously, there's a lot of children there, so schooling is an issue. Um, you talk, you know, we would have a lot of downtime to talk to the kids, and you'd ask them, like, you know, are you in school? Do you go to school? What grade are you in? Um, roughly about, like, half of them would tell you, like, no, I don't go to school. And, you, you know, you'd ask them why. You'd wonder why. Um, because schooling is available there. It may not be uh, to the standards of academics that we have in our country, but at least they're provided something to continue their education. Yet a lot of these children don't want to go to school. Um, so you start thinking about the other factors in their lives that might be influencing this. Um, have they seen some sort of traumatic event in Syria? For example, many children have seen their own school bombed within Syria. Um, is this causing them such severe post-traumatic stress disorder that they can't even go to school anymore? Um, some of them are forced to work. So, you know, they pick work over school. Do I help provide for my family or do I go to school? So it's a big issue within the camp because they have so many children yet so many of them don't go to school, so you worry about a lost generation within the Syrian population. Um, how many of these kids are going to get an education, and how many of these kids are going to be able to hopefully one day go back to Syria and help rebuild? Um, so education is a big problem here. Um, also, in terms of, I guess, just health-wise, um, I guess one thing I've noticed being in medical school is chronic illnesses... Uh, whether you're here in the U.S. or abroad, are relatively the same. You know, every, every country has people with high blood pressure or diabetes or uh, lung issues like COPD. But the difference between us and most other countries, the difference between developed countries and underdeveloped countries, is we, the, the people living here have their chronic illnesses controlled. They may have high blood pressure, but it's usually controlled with medications, uh, routine doctor visits, etc. But countries and underdeveloped areas, such as a refugee camp, they have these same chronic illnesses, but they're not controlled. So, you know, there's many reasons for that. Um, one may be medication shortages. Uh, another may be a shortage of doctors, so they may not get a routine doctor visit to help them monitor up with their high blood pressure. Or they may not get the routine prescriptions to get the blood pressure medication that they need. Um, and this is something I noticed while we were in the refugee camp, shadowing some of the doctors. Um, 
because there was such a high traffic and flow um, of patients coming in. You can imagine a group outside of Jordan from America, a group of doctors is coming into the refugee camp. Obviously, everyone is going to want to go get a free checkup, get themselves examined, get some medication. So you can imagine how many people were were waiting in the waiting room. Um, Honestly, it it was overfilled. So you can imagine as a physician, you have to go pretty fast to maintain a good flow and see as many patients as you can. So oftentimes, um, proper instruction of how to take your medicines um, was not delivered, basically, uh, which can be an issue if you give someone medication and they don't know how many times a day to take it. Uh, they may not have enough of the medication. They may not know when to start, when to stop, etc. Um, this can be an issue in an underdeveloped um, and high-output area like a refugee camp. So... This is just something I picked up on while we were there, that a lot of these people suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes, but it's not controlled, which is a big issue uh, in terms of the healthcare aspect within refugee camps. Another thing, while we were here, honestly, probably the most enjoyable part um, after the day was over, after shadowing some of the doctors and working with them uh, and translating for some of them, uh, we got to basically interact with some of the children. They'd, they'd be waiting in the waiting room, um, which was like a large area outside of the offices. Um, it's actually in the top right corner. You can kind of see it. It's behind the fence. And these children would just kind of like float around all day. They'd kind of just be running around waiting for someone in a Sam's vest to kind of like free up so that they can sort of interact with you. And it's funny. Like you'd go, you'd sit down on one of the benches, and then across from you like four or five kids would sort of like shyly come and start watching you and they'd be like smiling and laughing at you. Um, you could tell like they, they wanted to play. They wanted someone to play with them. Um, so it was a really fun and enjoyable aspect to be able to, to play with them. And it was sort of like being within uh, a small hole within the refugee camp. Like when you were interacting with the kids, you almost forgot that you were in a refugee camp because the kids were smiling, laughing, playing, just like any other kid. Um, and it sort of made you forget where you were. But at the same time, there are instances when you'd see glimpses of things that these kids have seen within their eyes. Um, you could tell some of these kids may be suffering from a post-traumatic stress disorder um, or some sort of psychological disorder. Um, they'd be a little bit uh, reclusive or reserved. Um, some of these kids as well had seen things that, n- honestly, no kid should ever seen. Uh, honestly, no kid should ever see some of the things that these kids have seen. Um, obviously, some of them have seen uh, destruction of homes, destruction of their schools, um, the killing of some of their family members. Um, some of them have seen family members be abducted from their family. Uh, so you can only imagine that while these kids try to portray a normalcy to us, uh, at the same time, you could see through them at times. Um, and it was very, very impactful to see this. Another place that we went to was um, the city of Idabid, which is very close to the Zatari refugee camp. Within the city, there was a clinic that some of the locals let us use, basically sort of as an outpatient clinic to treat different people. Um, They'd come in, doctors would see them. Um, The main thing, I I didn't spend much time here, but the main thing I noticed was... um, there was one man there. He was, I believe, a uh, physiotherapist. Um, and 
at one point I was sitting with him and he had two teenage boys come and visit him. Um, and these kids didn't have an appointment or anything. They just came to come and say hi to this man. And I don't know, I thought it was a little strange. Like most people coming in had an appointment. They were here for some reason. But these kids just decided to take time out of their day to come and see this this physiotherapist. Um, so like I can only imagine how well-respected a volunteer like him is within his community, um, someone who's taken time uh, out of his life to serve a people who are in need and need a lot of things. Um, and it was nice to see that the people really appreciated that. So that was one thing that I noticed when we went here. Um, one of my favorite places that we got to go to was the Happiness Again Psychosocial Clinic for Children. Um, this is a psychosocial clinic where kids enroll for a 12-week program and basically they go through sort of like a mixed regimen of um, activities and different, uh, I don't want to say psychological tests, but like they go through different activities to sort of rebuild them because many of these kids enroll uh, having suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, or different things like that, which is very, very big with the Syrian refugee population. So they come in enrolled with post-traumatic stress disorder, and the goal of this program is basically to restore as much normalcy to these kids as, as you can possibly restore. Um, so we got to shadow basically what a day is like for these kids. They come in, they open up with doing some sort of like activity like meditation or yoga, um, and while we were watching this, it was um, sort of very shocking to see that at one point the kids were asked to uh, meditate and close their eyes and get into like a sort, sort of a yoga pose. Um, and I was sitting in the back of the room, so all the kids were facing forward. I couldn't see like the expression on their faces. But after the activity was over, the psychologist that was leading the session asked some of the kids why they couldn't close their eyes. So me sitting in the back, I couldn't notice this. I didn't notice that not all of the kids had closed their eyes. Um, but some of these kids, even when they close their eyes, even in a relaxed setting like meditation, even when they close their eyes, they still see traumatic events from past experiences that they've had within Syria. Uh, one of the boys there specifically had witnessed the beheading when he was within, when he when he was in Syria. So you can only imagine like these kids suffer from such severe post-traumatic stress disorder that they can't even close their eyes uh, when asked to do so, even you know, in such a relaxed setting as yoga. Um, the day continued there, and we saw some of the different activities that they get to do, like um, there's sand therapy, where there's basically like a small sandbox and different action figures where some of the kids can construct scenes. And the psychologist there interprets the scenes that they construct. So, for example, if the kid chooses the soldiers uh, and places them within the sandbox, um, you can sort of interpret that as, okay, maybe he has some sort of event in his past that is triggering some sort of like bad response within him um, versus if he chooses some more peaceful figures and makes a more peaceful scene. So that's just some of the stuff we got to see there. Um, Everyone there is a volunteer. They, they do this, um, you know, out of their own time. And it was really amazing to see that uh, p 
people within the city itself. This wasn't like outside of the city in a refugee camp. This was within the capital itself. It was nice to see that people were taking actions to incorporate the Syrians within the Jordanian society and sort of make them feel welcome and try and restore a state of normalcy in the children. The last place that we got to visit, and arguably the most impactful place for some of the volunteers uh, that were with us, was a place called Suriyat Across Borders. So this was basically a clinic where anyone who was suffering from any sort of musculoskeletal disorder, such as like paralysis, for example, um, would go here. It was sort of like a rehab clinic. Um, many of the patients there uh, are forced to use wheelchairs, like they can't walk. Some of them are even forced to reside in the beds. I think you can see in the picture one of the patients that is basically just, like they, they can't get out of bed without assistance. Um, and hearing some of their stories was honestly quite saddening. Um, there was one young man, probably my age, um, he was in a wheelchair, paralyzed from about the arms down. Um, and we were talking to him, and someone asked him, like, how, how did you come to be like this? Like, what happened? And he was saying he was out running errands for his family. He was going to get groceries for his family in Syria. On his way, he was shot in the back of the neck by a sniper. Um, and paralyzed from basically where the bullet shot him all the way down. Um, so you can imagine, one, like how fortunate he was to be found in a situation like that, because, you know, he's out within Syria. Um, you, he was very fortunate, one, to be found, and two, to be able to be taken to a place like this where they can care for him, and provide him the physical therapy that he needs and all the support that he needs as well. Um, there was a little boy here who um, was probably about 10 or 12 years old, um, and he had uh, both of his legs amputated. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but he had both of his legs amputated, and he basically refuses to receive prosthetic limbs. Anytime they try and get him, like, prosthetic legs, he ends up taking them off and not using them. He prefers to, he basically walks on, he walks with his hands, basically, sort of like gliding across the floor. Um, and it was, I don't want to say crazy to see this, but it was, it was crazy to see someone who would refuse um, treatment or getting prosthetic limbs and choose to basically reside in a state like that. So you could see um, sort of like the psychological impact and the trauma that a war can cause on a person. Even decision-making skills are affected. Um, but overall, this place, they invited us to sort of like a, a dinner at one point during the trip. Um, and we got to sit and talk with many of the patients there. Um, and it felt you know, really uh, nice and impactful to hear many of their stories, um, some of the suffering that they had gone through, but also some of their optimism as well, things that, you know, they want to do in the future, like attend universities, things like that. So coming back from the trip, um, it, was, um, it was sort of a weird feeling because you go from a state where you're physically over there helping out every single day, 
Um, so our trip lasted six days. Every single day we'd go, we'd do something. We'd go to a refugee camp. Um, we'd go to a local clinic. We'd go to the psychosocial clinic. Uh, and every day we were doing something. So when you come back, you sort of ask yourself, like, okay, what next? Like, what am I going to do now? I'm going from a state of helping every day to sort of like back to my normal routine. Um, for some people, it, it works. There's a smooth transition between coming back from a medical mission trip to uh, restarting their normal life. However, for some people, uh, the transition isn't as smooth. Some people, when they come back from a medical mission trip, um, they experience a little bit of anxiety or stress because they've seen so much when they're over there and they're coming back to a situation where you know, they're safe, they have their daily needs, um, they have everything that they want and need. And for some, it can sort of be stressful uh, and sort of disheartening that I'm coming back to a very good situation and I'm leaving people that I've just been with for a week and helping them out and I'm leaving them in the same situation that I saw them in when I arrived. Did I really make an impact? Did I really do anything? Um, so coming back from a medical mission trip, this is one of the things you have to grapple with. Um, trying to return to the normalcy of your life. But at the same time, I want to argue that your life shouldn't return to full normalcy. You should, like we described earlier when we started, you should have had an emotionally moving experience that caused you to become motivated enough to want to take some sort of further action. So when you come home, you don't just go back to your daily routine. You start to incorporate things like social advocacy, uh, you start to figure out how I can make an impact back home now. Because I was just there, I was on the ground making an impact, however small it may be. But now I'm back home, what can I do here to let people know what's going on overseas? And what can I do while I'm still here to help those people out? So I think, personally, at least for me, this was one of the things that I struggled with. And one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about myself, is what can I do now? Um, and I think, uh, personally, events like this, where you can bring a group of people who are like-minded, who um, genuinely in their heart want to help people, want to learn about the situations across the world, I think situations like this are very, very impactful. Because what happens is, someone comes in, uh, someone has a conversation with you, they enlighten you and tell you about what's going on over there, their experience overseas, and all of a sudden you feel like, wow, I, I want to do something. Um, and it's people like the people in this room um, who are motivated individuals that not necessarily will want to go overseas onto a medical mission trip. You know, that's the extreme of trying to do something, you know, really, really helpful. But, you know, it can be as simple as... Um, talking to a local worker uh, or talking to a co-worker about what's going on in Syria or participating with your local church or your local mosque uh, or local religious organization in general who are raising money for Syria or are collecting clothes or collecting canned foods. Um, so just because you're here in the States doesn't mean you can't have an impact overseas, which is one of the things that I slowly started to understand when I came back from the trip, and hopefully I want to convey to other people as well. 
So, continuing off of that, different ways to get involved. Volunteering, obviously, is a huge, huge way to get involved. Um, organizations like the Syrian American Medical Society uh, are constantly doing things, both here and overseas, um, and supporting them and other organizations like them is very helpful, um, whether that be through donations or just uh, through word of mouth, spreading uh, the things that they do, and that covers donating, social advocacy. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, um, back where I'm from in Cleveland, the local newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, recently published a front-page article um, talking about the local refugee families that have been coming into the U.S. Um, if you guys know, the U.S. had agreed to accept 10,000 uh, Syrian refugees, and they have, at least in, uh, not necessarily that all 10,000 are here, but they have at least met that, st that goal that they have set for themselves. Um, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer published a front-page article on the lives of some of these Syrian refugees that are coming to Cleveland and the local impact that they're having. And one of the things that I picked out from the article that I thought was very interesting was that the annual $4.8 million of funding that goes to you know, resettling a refugee, making sure they have their daily monthly allowance of, of money and basically the necessities, um, it effectively generates $48 million in total annual economic activity. So for every $1 that's spent on a refugee coming in, they return $10 back to our economy. Uh, they also support jobs, 650 jobs in the Cuyahoga County, which is basically the greater Cleveland area, and they generate basically $2.8 million in taxes to the state and local authorities. Um, so many people... Sadly, it's, it's portrayed this way in the media that um, refugees coming over to our country is an issue. Um, many people point out to um, incidences that have gone over, isolated incidences that have gone on overseas um, as a result of the mass migration refugee crisis to Europe. Um, but within this article itself, there was about an entire page devoted to the uh, resettlement process that the refugees have to go through just to get into this country. I couldn't, I couldn't put the picture on the PowerPoint because it didn't fit on the page. It's such a long and strenuous process that these refugees have to go through that takes over a year for them to basically be vetted and questioned and analyzed to see if they're eligible to come to our country. Um, and it's not just random people that are coming. It's families uh, that have been suffering in neighboring countries. It's uh, college students that have been forced to drop out of their university because of the crisis. Um, and it's children um, who basically aren't able to go to school wherever they're living at and need a better place to go to. Uh, so I thought it was very uh, interesting, and I really appreciated the fact that the Cleveland newspaper took the time and effort to dig into our local refugee situation and find some facts on it. If you are interested in a future medical mission trip with SAMS, you can, uh, here's the link, but you can go to their website. You can just Google Syrian American Medical Society mission trips. You'll find uh, future mission trips. They go to Lebanon, they go to Jordan, they go to Greece. Um, and it's honestly a 
very, very amazing experience. Like, I, I don't even think I can put it into words how amazing an experience it is to go over there, see what's going on, and to help these people out. Um, we had about 40 to 50 volunteers that went with our trip. Um, there were uh, Arab volunteers, Muslim volunteers, non-Muslim volunteers, uh, non-Arabic-speaking volunteers. Um, so no matter who you are, um, a mission trip to these areas is very feasible for you. Um, there were translators there who translated um, for like the non-Arabic-speaking doctors. When the patients would come in, they'd have a translator so they could get the appropriate medical history. And there was always someone around who spoke Arabic and spoke English as well. So no matter where you were, um, you always felt incorporated within the group. And I just wanted to end with this again, just to remind us that hopefully all of us uh, within our lives have emotionally moving experiences that cause us to become motivated enough to take positive and productive action, uh, whether in the case of the Syrian refugees or just anything in general in our life. I think that this is a very important principle to remember. Thank you. Obviously, you living there, I feel like you probably have arguably the best perspective on what's going on, you know, because you were physically there. Um, but in turn, like, my only experience is with my family, obviously, because my mom and dad are both from Syria, um, and we still have a lot of family living there. So they'll, they'll talk with them over the phone, um, check in on how they're doing, um, and just reading different articles um, and news, etc., stuff like that. Um, Obviously, right now, Syria is a mess. Like, you have many different fronts. You have the regime front. You have the rebel front. You have groups like al-Nusra. You have groups like ISIS. Um, it seems like there's five or six different groups within the country that all want something. You know, each, each group has their own agenda. And unfortunately, caught in the middle of all of this are the civilians. Um, you know, they, they really don't have anything to do with this. They're just caught in the middle of a mess, in the middle of this war. Um, but, I mean, each group has their own, like, territory that they're sort of involved with. Like, if you look at maps, they show ISIS covering the northeastern corner of Syria, um, the government holding major cities like Damascus, um, Latakia, uh, parts of Aleppo. Um, right now, what's big in the news is Aleppo. Um, and basically Aleppo is sort of like split down the middle. You have the western front of Aleppo, 
which is government-controlled, and you have the eastern front of Aleppo, which is sort of like the rebel-controlled area. Um, but within both of these city, within both of these halves of the same city, you have civilians. So um, what's going on right now in Aleppo is the government is making a strong, strong push to try to take over the eastern portion of Aleppo because they think if they can get this, this is sort of like the last major city that they will basically need full control over. Um, so there's about 250,000 civilians living in Aleppo. So these, like when you see Aleppo on the news, it's this part of the city that's constantly getting um, airstrikes rained on them from Russian fighter planes or government planes. Um, occasionally, too, I mean, I know the rebels are fighting. The rebels, the rebel groups say that they are fighting for the people, but sometimes, sometimes they end up killing civilians as well. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. Like, for for example, like I wouldn't argue that the rebel groups they aren't perfect. They and I, I don't want to say that they just target Christians or Muslims because, like, regardless of what religion you are in this mess, you're you're a potential target. Um, but like, I have an aunt who is living in Damascus, and at one point, the rebel groups, you know, as regardless of whether they're saying they're doing good or not, at one point they basically almost like kicked her out of her apartment because they wanted to use it as like a like a stronghold um, or like a base. So no, no one is immune to to any group basically. It's it's honestly very sad because all these groups they want something, but the civilians end up suffering the most. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I was curious with all the trauma that people are going through, uh, are you seeing a lot of spiritual resources provided? You know, from, like when you have a trip with everyone with lots of different mm-hmm. religious backgrounds and stuff, um, you know, it seems like a lot of times those kind of problems, that, you know, me coming from a Christian perspective, I would want to pray in the name of Jesus or to right. touch people and heal people. Um, how is there any goal so personally speaking about the trip that I went on I didn't really see any spiritual care being delivered um, most of it was a patient would come into the doctor's office um, you know we'd be so short on time the translators would be translating for the physician if they didn't speak Arabic, um, they just want to get the diagnosis, get them their medication, and on to the next patient. Um, so I think in the setting we were in, it wasn't optimal. But at the same time, um, many of the physicians there uh, were Muslim physicians and could relate to you know, many of the Muslim patients that came in. Um, so if, if at any point spiritual care needed to be given... Um, I think it could have been. 
But at the same time, I don't think it was the focus of the trip. And I honestly think it's, it's a little sad because I think it's a good – it would be a nice dynamic to have both aspects of a person's health taken care of. You know, obviously, people are suffering from physical ailments, but at the same time, you, know, you can only imagine how down someone's spirit may be um, from suffering from a situation like this. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure exactly what local religious leaders they may have there that are already, you know, living there trying to provide the spiritual care. But in terms of our trip in general, it wasn't really happening. Um, I was just wondering if you or anyone has any um, ideas about uh, the new administration and how we try to stand up for the refugee world. Right. No, I think, honestly, I think that's an important topic and an important issue. Um, Personally, I don't consider myself well-versed enough in the um, political aspects of the situation. Like, I know there are experts out there that have studied what's going on in Syria and studied our response and our government's role within the situation. So I don't want to give an opinion that may be false or overshadow it. I will say that groups like the Syrian American Medical Society um, are very involved, like even you know, during, during the campaigning and when the election was going on, they were involved talking to both sides. You know, regardless of who was going to be elected, they were making sure that they would be able to hopefully influence the next president, uh, make sure that they know what's going on, make sure they know what Sam's wants from them, and make sure that hopefully an appropriate response can be given. Um, Honestly, I think the political situation is very, very tough because you have so many groups that are involved, uh, whether it be within Syria or outside of Syria, like Russia, different groups of the United Nations, even our own country. Um, And I think everyone wants their own thing. Um, And until people can agree, um, put differences aside and basically put the opinions and preferences of the Syrian people at the forefront, the situation may just continue to go on. In the back. I wondered if the refugee camp itself and the new development activities, if there's any opportunity for the development workers to go in, or is that too early to still kind of work for the whole care that are needed, or do you see activities like literacy, like education, I know, personally, I believe there was at least one person within our group who was, I want to say a social worker. Um, So I think people are interested, there are many people who have an invested interest in the future within these Syrian refugee camps and just within the whole Syrian situation in general. Um, So there are people going in, um, analyzing the community and the dynamics within the camps, figuring out what shortages they have. Like I said, there are many children. How do we get them to go to school? How do we get more schools? That kind of stuff. There are many groups. Um, if, you want, if you want to write the name down, I think uh, it's called the Karam Foundation. It's spelled K-A-R-A-M and then Foundation. Um, I believe that they are a group that is really taking an interest in 
future education within different um, countries like Lebanon and Jordan, where there are a lot of Syrian refugees. Um, they have different like statistics on their websites of um, like different education opportunities that they've started in these places and how big of an impact it's had. Um, so I think that it is an important issue and people are starting to realize it and people are starting to do something about it. Um, at the same time, a place like the Zatari camp, at least this is what I noticed, it's very heavily regulated by the Jordanian government. Um, when you want to enroll within the camp, basically, as a refugee, like say you're coming from Syria and you want to be a refugee in this camp, um, you basically, you have to register, and that basically entails, like, I'm going to live within this camp. I'm not going to try and go out and mingle within the Jordanian society. I, I want the benefits of living in this camp, which is, you know, the shelter, the, the daily food allowances. Um, surprisingly, though, most of the refugees within that area that the Zatari refugee camp is don't actually live within the camp. Many have tried to sort of make it on their own in the surrounding suburbs of the area. Um, but when you're in the camp, you're sort of stuck. Um, you, you're restricted as to when you can go out and come back in, that kind of stuff. So I think the government is heavily involved in there. I don't know how much of an impact that has on groups who want to come in and do things for the refugees, like build schools, increase education, um, provide clinics, that kind of stuff. But I do think that people are starting to realize, at least outside um, of a refugee camp like Zatari, within just sort of the local communities of Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey, that these things are issues and that people need to do something about it. It's, not, it's nice, and I think seeing, seeing kids like that provides, obviously, hope for the future and optimism. Um, you know, just because we provide opportunities for them, uh, like education opportunities, for example, it doesn't mean that they'll be taken. Um, the organization I was just talking about, Kerem Foundation, they try to provide these opportunities, but they still report that, like, half the refugees in these areas still aren't going to school, for example. Um, so it's an issue, and we try to do as much as we can, but, you know, you can only do so much. Thank you for sharing. Um, I just wondered if you could mention some of the groups, the volunteer groups that are there, and primarily what countries they are. American First, Doctors Without Borders, groups like that, like the men, are involved in the refugee program. So, personally... I know, obviously, the group that went, the Syrian American Medical Society, which was the group I went with. Um, within the camp, like the Zatari refugee camp, they had, like, signs of which groups um, are involved in sponsoring and funding these camps, basically. I don't recall whether they're groups like Doctors Without Borders, etc. but, like, if you... I'm not... You can probably find this information online, but there are multiple groups 
that um, are involved in areas like this, um, and you know, multiple religious groups as well, you know, Christian humanitarian organizations, Islamic humanitarian organizations, etc. So there are a good number of groups, not just one, that's involved in this situation. Thank you guys so much for allowing me the opportunity to speak to you.